Hey, y'all, good morning. Um, as, as the third person to say, if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Ryan, and I serve one as, the, as one of the pastors here, um, and I'm excited to look uh, at First Thessalonians uh, with you all today. Um, I just did the math a moment ago with Aaron, uh, was realizing that um, this year I'm going into 15 years of, in some form, working like within the church, serving and leading within some kind of thing. It's been almost all of my, it has been all of my adult life, has been at some stage working within this, which is kind of cool, or maybe to you, kind of weird. Um, but, but the thing that um, I, I've begun to kind of, uh, was just kind of literally a moment ago, doing the math in my head with was, um, that's how many years I've been within some kind of local church ministry thing. And for each of those years, I have at least one leader or pastor over those years that has in some significant way um, disqualified themselves, blown up their ministry, had to walk away in a, in a really messy way. Um, and, and, and so I, I, I often joke because of my story of, um, I mean, I just remember within the first year of me setting out to like, I'm gonna be in a, I'm gonna do ministry stuff. I'm gonna work in the church. Within that week, the associate pastor at the church that I grew up in, we had this church meeting where all the members got together for him to kind of relay the fact that he had been like, adulteress for years and years hiding it up. And I'm sitting there going, that's what I want to be when I grow up. <laughs> and, and then I, you know, sat in on, on board meetings of the churches where I'm the guy taking minutes and taking notes for like these, you know, pastoral meetings. And in real time, financial mismanagement by one of the pastors is happening. Like, can you imagine trying to keep notes with that? Like they're saying this is like, he says this angry, like he's disappointed. Like, how do you, but this is the reality that I've grown up in. I, I have sat under um, and been on the receiving end of, of verbal abuse from the very people that I look to as mentors and, and like father figures in the faith. I, I regularly joke that, that most of the alternate universes, if they exist, Ryan is like a, a TikTok, like, you know, deconstruct your faith, like influencer guy. That's who I should be based off of my story. And yet it's really weird that I'm here um, continuing to do this same, this thing. I, I genuinely find it very strange. Um, and, and the biggest fallout that I've experienced through all of these instances has been um, the repeated fallout with more people. I can count 16 on my hand, pastors and leaders that have you know, blown up their churches and their lives. I can't count on my hands how many people have walked away from the church and the faith because of them. Um, and so when I hear stories and stats that are you know, coming out about the great dechurching that we talked about last week and how part of that 40 million that have walked away from the church, 10 million of them are not um, casual dechurchers, those who have fallen away because of the crisis of discipleship. That's the majority of them. But there is this big chunk, 10 million of them, who are not casually dechurched, but as, as the researchers put it, dechurched casualties, those who, because of some tension and strife, some dynamics within a church, everything from just kind of, you know, church hurt, which happens, to outright spiritual abuse, have walked away from the faith. And so last week, when we were talking about the dechurched moment that we're in with 40 million people walking away from the church, last week we were focused on how so much of that comes out of a crisis of discipleship, that many churches over the past 30 years have just not developed a robust framework for people to have a deep, ongoing, vibrant life with Jesus, being shaped into the image of love in the, in the way of Jesus. We just, we just haven't developed that. That's the crisis of discipleship. This week, I want to speak more to the 10 million. I want to speak to not the crisis of discipleship, but the crisis of credibility, specifically with the leaders in the church. 
Because as more and more of this happens, some of you have listened to podcasts, some of you have read the hot take articles, you have experienced this firsthand yourselves. And so what it leads to then is when any time somebody like me gets up here and is like, I'm going to teach the Bible or I'm going to lead them in the church, it just immediately is skepticism, cynicism, doubt, and if anything, distance and disregard. We just want to walk away from it altogether. But for us to regain and to lean into what it means to be the church in, an, in a moment of de-churching, we need to not just think through our discipleship and our call to be followers of Jesus. We also have to address, as a community, the crisis of credibility. We have to address creating a context in which leaders are trusted rather than seen with skepticism. Because that, 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 is, that is what we find. And so... As we continue in 1 Thessalonians, which if you want to go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is where we're going to be today, it's uniquely these kinds of things that I want to look at. Because, man, you watch the YouTube videos, you read the articles, you listen to the podcasts, and if, if I were to ask you, what is a pastor? What should a leader in the church be? Most of the answers that come immediately to your mind are negative rather than positive. They're not this. They wouldn't do that. They don't talk that way. They don't conduct themselves that way. But we don't actually have a very vibrant portrait of, of who the heck is supposed to be a contributing member to kind of guiding this community. What are the positive things we should look for? Not just for like those of us in the church that are pastors or leaders here, but for those of you that are seeking to be a leader at some point or just the, as, as people in the church, what are you to hold your leaders to? The reality that many of you at some point are going to move away from the city, from collective. What should you be looking for in a sort of pastor? What kind of things should you be looking for? Paul, once again, not speaking to these questions, addresses them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Would you join me in standing for the reading of the scriptures? As we pick up in the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Thessalonica. He writes to them, for you yourselves know, brothers and sisters, that our visit with you was not without result. On the contrary, after we had previously suffered and were treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, we were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God to you in spite of great opposition. For our exhortation didn't come from error or impurity or intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or had greedy motives. God is our witness. And we didn't seek glory from people, either from you or from others. Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you, as a nurse nurtures her own children. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives because you had become dear to us. For you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters. We worked night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We preached God's gospel to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you believers. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Father, would you now uh, guide us through this text? Um, may uh, God, the meditation and the study that I've given to this passage over the past week now bring 
life beyond simply just um, a chance for us to think in abstract forms and ideas about leadership in the church, but um, for this to become something that's embedded within um, how we view not just leadership in the church, but what it means to be a community of Jesus that is walking worthy of God. Got a community that is responsive to the calling that you've given us to your kingdom and glory. So shape us even now. In your name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. So we jumped into chapter two last week. If you remember, we kind of talked about a bit of the crisis of discipleship within the American church and largely used that first chapter to just see how Paul, through his gratitude for the church in Thessalonica, uh, for the church in Thessalonica, he uses his gratitude for this community as an avenue to kind of bring to bear what are the marks of a model church. So if last week was the crisis of discipleship and the marks of the model church, here in chapter two, what Paul moves into is a gratitude, not for the Thessalonian church, but as weird as it may sound, a gratitude for his own ministry along with Silas or Silvanus and Timothy. He's celebrating before them, hey, this is who we've been. This is how we are. And again, in this gratitude, we find these marks, not of a model church like last week, but marks of a model pastor is what he's developing. So just look though, within verses one and two, what Paul does in this gratitude is it, it, just notice what he does. For you ourselves know, brothers and sisters, and then again in verse two, as you know, he does these two little like reminders of what they experienced. Even more than that, in verse two, he not only addresses them immediately as brothers and sisters, he talks about how our visit was not in vain. Like there was, there was a dynamic moment that happened with our ministry. And then he's talking three times in just these two verses. He talks about the suffering and the resistance that they went through. It's just interesting when you think about the fact that he's coming out of a poem of gratitude for the Thessalonian church, that now he immediately jumps in to start talking about like his own ministry. Like if you got a letter from someone and that was how they, it'd be interesting. Why, Why is that the first thing that they attend to? Especially when it seems like Paul's almost like making a defense of his ministry. It's like, you guys remember me, right? Brothers and sisters, remember how great things went? Remember how hard it was for us, but we stuck with it? Like, why is this, the, is this tra- like we're reading the Bible and we're asking questions? This is how you do it, right? And so what happens is you develop through the letter, you'll see more of this in chapter three and onward, is, is the, the kind of best uh, synopsis of what Paul is addressing here is if you go back and read Acts 17, you'll find the story of how the church in in Thessalonica was planted. Paul, Silas, and Timothy come into town. They begin to preach the gospel, begin to gather up a community of people following Jesus. And yet from within that, there begins to be persecution and outside suffering that's trying to pull them apart. So much so that they go into this guy Jason's house that the church was meeting at. They drag him out into the streets and they're calling out for Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Bring them out to us. And and so what ends up happening is the church sends Paul, Silas, and Timothy out of the city. You've got to get out of here. They're going to kill you. And so Paul leaves. And so in now his absence that came because of these people opposed to Paul and company, in his absence now, there's beginning to be this, as one commentator put it, a smear campaign against Paul and against, against his compatriots in the ministry that he was there with because he left. And so what they began to ascribe to him is, we don't have, like, so think before TikTok, think before the internet, think before all of this. In the city of Thessalonica and in Roman culture in general, you can find all of these reports about um, 
these particular groups of kind of like charlatan vagabond philosophers who would travel through cities, they would post up in the streets and they would begin to kind of wax eloquently gathering a crowd to then open up their wallet. Hey, pay me for the wisdom that I've given you. And also while you're at it, does anybody have a couch that I can surf on and somebody that I can sleep with? And this became such a thing that they called the sophists and the cynics, two different groups of them, that this was a regular thing that real philosophers would talk about. Like we'd get mad about all of these sophists and these cynics who would come to town, set up shop, get what they can, and then they would leave. And so what's happening now, and you'll see more of this in chapter three as we progress, is as Paul has left the city, he's left the church that he planted, there is now this smear campaign happening within the Thessalonian church saying, you can't trust Paul. They're attacking his character. They're attacking his authority. You can't trust him or the gospel that he gave you. He came here to get rich and get out, and so you you can't trust him. Get away from the guy. Don't have anything to do with him. And so why Paul, part of why Paul is writing this letter is to address uniquely this. He's specifically trying to keep this church from walking away from the gospel that he's given them. And so his defense of his ministry here is not, as he'll say, for the sake of defending his character, defending his name, but he knows the reality that as the credibility of pastors falls, those proclaiming the gospel, so too does the credibility of the gospel itself. And Paul doesn't want this church to lose out on what God has been doing within them. And so he's writing this to address the specific claims that you can't trust Paul. You can't trust pastors. He's dealing with a crisis of credibility. Hmm. And so what he's gonna do masterfully, you'll see behind me, it's kind of a map of where we're gonna go from here, is um, the marks of a model pastor. So first, Paul is going to look at the motive of a model pastor as he reads things through the why. Why do we do what we do as leaders within the church? Then he's gonna move into the method. How do we do what we do? What is a model pastor's methodology, the way they do ministry within a church look like? And then finally, the mission of a model pastor. And all of these because the fourth mark of a model pastor is alliteration. And they, <laughs> give you guys a minute to catch up with that one. Um, is, and then finally, the, their mission. is If that is the, the why they do what they do, the how they're doing what they do, it's the what. What is a pastor actually meant to give themselves to? So let's look at this first. Let's look at the motive. Why does a pastor, a leader in the church, do what they do? Once again, the whole point of all of this is not to pat Ryan on the back or Lorenzo on the back. What we're trying to do is saying, in a moment of crisis of credibility towards pastors, what are we actually meant to be building off of? What are we aiming towards? And for you, as, as members of a church, what are you meant to hold your pastors to, to look for out of them? And then one day, if you should leave, to uh, look for in, 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 that, in a new community, and a new leader. So look with me, uh, the motive. Read with me verse three, and I'm gonna go all the way back down to verse six one more time. For our exhortation, that is our leadership, our preaching, did not come in error, or come from error, it wasn't wrong, or impurity, which has kind of connotations of sexual impurity and lust, or an intent to deceive. Instead, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please people, but rather God who examines our hearts. For we never used flattering speech, as you know, or we never had greedy motives. God is our witness, verse six, we did not seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. So just notice, before we get into the positives, Paul does a little bit of kind of like what podcasts and like hot take articles do. He first gives seven things that are not the motive of a model pastor. These seven dynamics that he goes, you know, whatever the motive was behind our ministry, I can tell you outright seven things that it wasn't. 
It wasn't from error. It wasn't wrong. It wasn't from impurity. We weren't coming here to figure out who we could sleep with. It wasn't with an intent to deceive and mislead you. It wasn't greed. We weren't looking to get money in our pockets, you know, jets and, you know, preacher sneakers. We weren't looking to, to get the, the, the paycheck out of this. What we were doing was something else. We weren't coming with flattering speech, this language of to manipulate you. And we certainly weren't coming to, to win you over simply to us, for us to please you, to get glory from you. That was not our intent. He lists these seven things. And in doing so, the examples that immediately come to mind for all of you are like, I'm sure you have portraits and pictures of the sorts of pastors that fit this bill. You've, you've read the articles, you've listened to the podcasts, maybe you've sat in and a part of communities with these kinds of motives working within, within the leadership of a church. And Paul's first mark is to say, that is, not, that is not at all who we are. In a sense, validating your concerns while also writing off anybody, regardless of what they call themselves, who calls themselves a pastor or a leader within the church who is ministering from these kinds of motives. Paul says they're not a, they're not a model pastor. They've missed the bill. In doing so, he's similarly saying, we are not those charlatan philosophers. Like all of the summary statements here, these are common words that philosophers would have used to talk about those vagabond folks. They come in, not only is their philosophy wrong, they're looking for who they can sleep with, they're trying to deceive and manipulate people, they're greedy. Paul's whole point is he's going, whatever that crew is, not only are we not with them, yes, you are right in looking at them and saying, no, they're, they're, that's not the way that it should be. But then as we move into verse four, he gives us the positive motive in, in a handful of parts. First, he says, instead, rather, because we're not like them, he says, just as we have been approved by God. So the first mark of a model pastor is that they have been examined is the language. They have been looked over. They have been prepared and now sent out and commissioned by God. So what that means is that it's not a, a self-designated title. Nobody elects themselves to, to leadership within the church. But also neither does necessarily do, do people. It is a work that God does. Now, how, how does Paul get approved by God? I think he's summarizing most of his life so far. He's talking about his road to Damascus experience where uh, Jesus blinds him and calls him to follow him and to become a messenger, an apostle to the Gentiles. But more than that, I think Paul's referring to the decade or so that he spent out in the wilderness by himself just to get his like, life and theology straight. Included within this was when he visited the church in Jerusalem to have be commissioned by the elders and the pastors there. And then also sent out from the church in Antioch and the elders and the pastors there. So where Paul says, I'm approved by God, that's not his like internal like, hey guys, listen to me. I have, you know, he's, it's not a self-designated title. He's referring back to the fact that God has approved him through the like two hands of time and community. Time, over a decade. I'm just saying, if you got blinded by Jesus and he's like, hey, go and preach to so-and-so, most all of us would be like, Okay, tomorrow, you'd get, you'd get the plane. You'd go right now. Paul took a decade plus. Why? To discern the commission and calling of God. If you had Jesus himself call you into some kind of role or ministry, you'd think, I've got it all. He still went to not one, but two different church communities that commissioned and sent him out. Just the reflection here is that church leaders are never self-designated. The community affirms and acknowledges the calling of God and time is God's mode of preparation, of time and obscurity. 
I talked about how long I've been in ministry. The majority of that has been like, I just was thinking back through this this week of like all the wild roles that I've held because I've been um, fortunate enough and I genuinely mean that to be a part in the midst of a lot of that mess, church communities that really valued the necessity and maybe if some of those leaders wouldn't have had it for themselves, they valued it for me and for that I'm grateful. The necessity of you serving away from the spotlight, away from obscurity of like, feeding, you know, goldfish to kids and having no one really see that, vacuuming and cleaning up buildings, of just doing like the day in and day out admin work of ministry with no one seeing it. This is part of the time that I'm talking about that Paul went through, serving a local church, serving God, apart from anybody clapping for it, apart from any public applause. So the first thing that a model pastor is, their motive is that they have the approval of God, the commissioning and calling of God. But at the end of verse four, he also talks about God who examines our hearts. This is actually the same little geeky moment. This is the same Greek word as approved from the beginning of verse four. So he kind of has this like examined and approved at the beginning, examined and approved at the end of verse four. But the difference is the first one that we just talked about is the past tense. And this one is now in a present tense. So this is Paul's idea. The the model pastor's motive of ministry is not just out of something they received when they were like 15 at like, you know, church camp, but is an ongoing receptivity to God examining, he says, my heart, weighing my heart, moving into the deep territory of my heart to bring out and clarify my motives as still being faithful to the calling of God as being a leader within the church. And so the, other, the motive is, is not, I had this experience when I was a kid. It is a daily present tense receptivity to the examination of God upon the pastor's heart. This then grows out of in verse four, he says, just as we've been approved by God and now we're actively being examined by God, we have been entrusted with the gospel. Entrusted is such a loaded phrase. It's, it's language of stewardship of a manager, of someone who has been given some kind of object or deposit. And they will answer for what they did with it to the one that gave it to them. And so the gospel that the pastor has, the gospel that leaders within the church has, he says it's been entrusted by God. If you look throughout the passage, multiple times, where does he say it? We have been, as you know, in verse 2, We were emboldened by our God to speak the gospel of God. If you flip over to verse eight, we cared not only to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives. And then in verse nine, we preach to you God's gospel. Paul's whole point is saying the message that we brought to you was not ours. It was something that God has given to us, entrusted to us through the work of Jesus. And so what that means, therefore, is that there's not a freedom for any church leader to tinker with the gospel because it doesn't belong to them. It's not ours to evolve and help God, like kind of, you know, that was what you said back then. We're really grateful for that, God. But let us help you kind of evolve the faith and, and make it into what it needs to be for today. The reality of a church leader is we have been given a deposit and therefore we will answer for what we do with the gospel that God has given us. Now that doesn't downplay the necessity of contextualization. The very same gospel preached in Los Angeles as preached in in Asheville, as preached in Calcutta, the same gospel will have different accents and different focuses and different priorities while still remaining the same thing. So this is not an absence of contextualization or an absence of gentleness. But a pastor is called to answer to God for what they do with the scriptures and with the gospel. This is why James, one of Paul's buddies, he would write, 
Not many of you should seek after and desire to be teachers because you will be judged with greater strictness. Terrifying, terrifying for anybody that's like, so uh, open your Bibles and let me, right? Terrifying reality. And yet the very thing that is terrifying for pastors should be that verse, a great confidence for those in the church. Because what that means is, is when Ryan gets up here, Ryan is not bringing his own stuff. Lorenzo, Casey, whoever it may be is not, here to wax eloquently of what, let me tell you what I think about the world. I'm doing my best to bring together the one true gospel of God through, yes, my personality and my experience, but not as a tinkerer, as a steward, as one entrusted with a deposit. All of this then comes together where Paul says that not only we've been approved by God and examined actively by God, entrusted with the gospel of God, so we speak not to please people, but rather God. This is the key motive of the pastor of a model pastor. You want to look for a pastor worth following? Find the guy that honestly doesn't care about your opinion. I'm not kidding. Find the guy that, yes, we're going to get to his gentleness. He talked about that in a moment. But the guy who at the end of the day, the thing that keeps him up at night is the pleasure of God. The thing that has him show up every single Sunday is not what everybody's going to think about the sermon, but him hearing from the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. The, the, the reality is that, that what you want most in a leader, what the church needs most, is not leaders that are pulled to and fro by popular opinion within the community. I'm, I know I'm too fickle for that. And so that's why it also, this is a side thing, I don't, there's no basis biblically for a single pastor model as well. You need a team of guys who are all together discerning the will of the God, the will of God, discerning the, what's most pleasing to God rather than what's gonna be most celebrated by the community, sometimes the very thing that God will call a community to do is the hard thing, will be the difficult, the stretching thing, and not the thing that gets the vote of public opinion. And so he says the thing that we're after is not pleasing anybody. It's not seeking the glory of anybody. It's what, it's, it's what God wants for his church. And so that is a task to be done by people who have, yes, been approved, people who have opened themselves up and put themselves laid bare before time and community to have motives sifted through and purged that actively daily open themselves up to God doing an examining work on their heart. For guys that, and men, pastors that, that deeply hold on to what they've been entrusted with the gospel as the tool through which they discern what is most pleasing to God. This, this is the motive of a model pastor. This is the thing to look for. And, and it's just wild to me, and it's, actually it's not that wild, to, I don't know why I'd say it's wild to me, but just the reality is, is that very often the, the sort of motives that we look for in pastors are just so different than this. Like when you think in your mind of like the perfect pastor, of like the perfect church that you would wanna be a part of, the, the reality is, it, what, what are those things that come to mind? Most often you're looking for a mirror. Most often what you're looking for is someone that reflects your unique dynamics, your unique wants and desires, someone that looks like you, thinks like you, and would lead like you. And the reality is, is that what God is doing is bringing together leaders of a church, not for the sake of mirroring us, but shaping us. And we're gonna get back to that more in a moment. But so that is first the motive of the church. Next, he's gonna move into the method. How do pastors do what they do? If all of that was scary, just look at verse Verse seven, what does he say? Although we could have been a burden as Christ's apostles, instead we were gentle among you. As a nurse, or I, I really don't know why the CSB did this, as it's a nursing mother. 
as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. So for all the leadership, yeah, and amen. Yeah, all the pleasing God, not people. What's the primary posture that Paul first talks about when he talks about how we do it? He gives the most vivid, what is a more nurturing, gentle portrait in your mind than a nursing mother? I, I, I can't think of one. And that's the first thing that Paul comes to mind when he's trying to remind the church of what his ministry looked like, when he's trying to set before us what a model church, what a model pastor's, what's their temperament like? What are, what's their presence like? When you're with them, Paul says, remember, we were gentle, nurturing. This is the kind of presence that a good pastor has. It's not that they don't lead, but that they lead with this guidance that is, first and foremost, a place of gentleness and nurturing. He continues in verse eight. We cared so much for you that we were pleased to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you have become so dear to us. So if the motive, we talked about all the motives, the why of the ministry, the what of the ministry is done with gentleness. And he says, we gave you both our preaching and our presence. We came to proclaim to you the gospel of God and also to give you our very own selves and lives. Notice that for Paul, the primary work of a pastor is not the delivery of content. He doesn't just say, we came to preach and then we left. We gave to you our very lives, our very selves. I gave you a ministry of my presence and my personality, of my family and my home, of being around the table with you, going out to eat with you, of sharing coffee with you. I didn't just give you words from a page or from a stage. I gave you my very life. You see, the problem that we have right now is, I mean, this is maybe not the problem. It's great. You have so much Jesus-y Bible content in your back pocket right now that you can get. All of it better than me. You, right now, you can get Ask N.T. Wright Anything podcast. You got Bible Project in your pocket. Like the late Tim Keller, they just keep releasing his sermons. And you can just listen to Tim Keller until you meet him in heaven. Like you <laughs> can find content that's so much better than, than what I'm able to give. You've got the, the influencer space, you've got YouTubes, you've got books you can read. The issue that the American church is having is not one of content, it's one of relationship. The primary problem that churches face is not the absence of okay sermons or good sermons, it's the absence of pastors who their gentle presence is known, not just from the stage, but around the dinner table. You don't need more content. Some of you do. Paul says, we were pleased not only to share with you the gospel of God, but our very own lives. This is why I am just, whatever, I'll come back to that in a minute. I will come back to it in a minute. He says, we were able to share, why? Because you became so dear to us. You just notice it's dripping with this family love. You are dear to us. We cared for you. We shared with your own lives. He says, verse nine, for you remember our labor and hardship, brothers and sisters, working night and day so we would not burden any of you. Again, we preached God's gospel to you. So not only is the, the method of a model pastor one of gentleness, of both proclaiming the gospel and sharing one's presence, he also says it's hardworking. There's like this fun like shtick. I'd say it's fun. It's not fun. That like pastors only show up to work on Sunday. Like that must be nice. Just kind of like dink around all week and then you like show up and you're like, I guess the Bible set right. Paul's whole point here is, is there should be a genuine reality that when you spend time with a pastor, you get to see and share in their lives. You go, man, 
these guys hardworking. They're not slacking. They're not riding on the church for a paycheck and kind of doing bare minimum. They're leaning in. But what Paul really is highlighting here is not just that we worked hard, but that we worked graciously. See, what he's actually talking about here, that we would not burden you. Most of you know that Paul was a tent maker during multiple seasons of his ministry, and that's not because he liked camping. The reality was that in certain contexts in cities where there were so many sophists and cynics that they had like a, a, a name for themselves, there was a pattern that was understood. Paul was so concerned about those new believers thinking that he was there to take money from them and move on that even though in the gospels, Jesus said ministers who work within the church are meant to get their wages, their, their, li- their, their, their payment from the church. That's how they put food on the table and a roof over their head is from their ministry. Paul forewent that that framework that Jesus himself gave for the sake of his people never having to wonder if he was just another one of those philosophers. So what he was doing then is the whole time he's in in Thessalonica and multiple other cities is he would wake up early in the morning, he would go about tanning hides and building together all these, these tents and then moving out into the marketplace to sell them during the day. And then tired Paul would give his evenings and nights and his weekends then to shepherding and pastoring and leading in the church. Why? So that we wouldn't be a burden to you. I just, I, he goes, I knew your fears. I knew your doubts. I knew the complications of the city that you lived in. And so even though I, I could have burdened you as an apostle of Jesus, I could have said, hey, while I'm here, I haven't eaten in a few days. And Jesus said, you guys should feed me. I could have done that. And yet I was so, I'm so worried that you would see me as being something other than what I am, a herald and messenger of the gospel of God, that I said, you know what, I'm going to do it tired and I'm going to work hard, but, but I'm going to give them the benefit of never having to wonder if I'm just another sophist or cynic. So he works not just hard, but graciously. Verse 10, here it is. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how devoutly, righteously, blamelessly we conducted ourselves with you. So you are witnesses here. Just maybe you've picked up on the pattern is over and over again, Paul says, you are witnesses. Verse one of chapter two, for you yourselves know. Verse two, as you know. Verse five, as you know. Verse nine, for you remember. Verse 10, you are witnesses. In a minute, verse 11, as you know. Paul, over and over and over again, keeps reiterating the fact that a model pastor is known by his people. So not just that we shared in our lives with you, but in a way that there was a mutual knowledge of one another. You knew me beyond the presentation that I give when I'm teaching. You knew me beyond my social media. You knew me beyond, you knew me, my conduct. You knew my righteousness, my blamelessness, not not being perfect, but above reproach, above any claim of unrepentant sin. You saw that. As you know, you knew me. The mark of a model pastor is they are known by their people. So this is once again why, like, you know, Ryan's opinion moment. So I am stepping aside here. There's the Bible space. This is Ryan's opinion moment. This is why I just, I have such a honestly hard time with online churches and even with mega churches that don't properly steward people being known by their pastors. This is why I have a hard time with social media pastors who conduct, show their conduct out here while they are not known here that people know more about them from their social media than them being in their living room. They know more about them than going out to coffee with them through what they perceive. Why? Because this is the model pastor, because they're not just giving content, they're giving their lives. And so the necessity of knowing them is because that is the means, that's, that's, that's what pastoring means. The old saying is shepherds have to smell like their sheep. 
And so Paul says, you know me, you know me, you know me. I'm not hiding myself from you. I gave you, and it's totally, there's space for like, you know, codependency and like Paul, like that can have an unhealthy side, right? Where Paul's just like running from house to house and like he, he's not, there's an unhealthy side of this. There's healthy boundaries, whatever, yada, 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 totally, yes, I know. But at the end of the day, model pastor is known by their people. Model, model, model leaders are known by their people within the church. And in a moment of just like influencer, spiritual leader space and social media, blah, like this is such a gift to remember, yes. My desire for a pastor who knows my name, not just the butt that I sit, the seat, the, the, the <laughs> chair that I sit in, not just, that too, that goes back to, um, our exhortation didn't come from impurity, is the, the chair that I sit in that knows me for my, my name. I remember Eugene, Pastor, uh, Eugene Peterson is telling this great little line about growing up within a particular church where when he grew up going to churches and the pastor would greet him at the door as he would walk in and he would always ask him, how's your soul today? And what Eugene said, he, he, didn't, he never said me, greeted me by name. He never knew my name. He was always concerned with my soul, but not my name. The idea being with this kind of amorphous part of me, but not with the reality of who I am as a personal pronoun, as a, as a person. And so pastors are known by their people and they know their people. Verse 11, he says, as you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored. Now just briefly, before we get into what the father stuff is doing here, just notice how he began talking about the method of a model pastor. He began, we said, like a nursing mother. In the middle, he reminds them of their brother and sister reality, right? And then here at the end, he talks about how like a father. So when we talk about the church as a spiritual family, this is Paul's whole model is that also doesn't just shape like how we, we all feel about each other. This is how, how pastors and leaders are meant to see themselves, family members, both like nurturing like mothers and instructing like fathers, but also like brothers and sisters, co-laborers running alongside one another. And so when he comes to the example of the father, he uses the image of the father instructing his own children. And he gives these three verbs, these three forms of instruction in the tool belt of a model pastor, encouragement, that is like cheerleading, celebration, running alongside you. You've got this, you've got this, go, 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 right? There's comfort, which is the entering into the pain, comforting, consoling in the midst of brokenness, and then imploring, which to me, imploring sounds like we begged you, right? It's like, please follow Jesus. That's what imploring makes me think of. The language in the Greek, it's, it's so much stronger. It's language of being charged, of, of being even commanded, um, it, it, it's rooted in, in the same word that we get for like a martyr, for someone dying for something. It's the calling of go. And so a good model pastor has a tool belt with all three of these at work and knows when to encourage, knows when to comfort, knows when to implore. But a good pastor utilizes all three. And in a moment where we have found many unhelpful cases of pastors at public levels who have been identified as being spiritually abusive, largely through almost only focusing on imploring in the absence of gentleness. The temptation, we've talked about this as a pastoral team, the temptation in this moment is either to be a pastor or for y'all to want a pastor who only comforts and encourages but never implores. 
This is, the, this, this is a deep, like, you want to hang out with me, Isaac, and Lorenzo? Like, what are you guys talking about? It's this dynamic that we have, as a, as a moment, we're so, and rightfully so, we just talked about this, so wounded and tr- like almost traumatized, like so, socially from any kind of authority and leadership within a community that, the, that, that like in order to lead within, it's like, well, we'll just never do that. We'll only comfort, we'll only like encourage, and that's all we're going to do. And Paul says, no, there's a moment, a time and a place to comfort, and there's a time and a place to implore. You see, you need all three. If you have a pastor who's only ever encouraging, you know, there's a, we have a word for that now. It's called toxic positivity. Some of you have been to those churches where every week, he's just like at 112, and you're just like, what? He's just always stoked to be alive, and you're like, man, I, don't, I can't be with you there. Like the, the amount of like energy that you have is just beyond what caffeine can give me. <laughs> or you have the pastors that, that all they lean into is the, is, is the comforting. And it becomes a church culture of coddling. Everybody, oh, I'm so sorry. We become, oh, and we just, we, just, we just comfort into just settling down and you know, we suck our thumb and fall asleep as a church community. Like, yeah, we're all hurt, but God's not calling us to do anything about it. And then the problem also is one where it's only ever imploring. And we've seen this where leadership becomes domineering, where you breed a culture of insecurity and fear. You see, you need all three. And all three are balanced out by the guidance and the gentleness of a nursing mother. Which I love, though, is that that comforting line there is that Paul doesn't have a framework where like, well, moms are uh, gentle and dads are mean and instructing. Paul says, as a father comforts his children, fathers too, in, in, in leaning into that sort of gentleness. So all of these come together that this is what Paul is building out. This is what, what to look for in a model pastor. What are you looking for? What are we leaning into as pastors? Is, is these kinds of dynamics here. Is a method of ministry that we go about in such a way that our presence is received as gen- gentle, nurturing. That you experience not just the preaching of the gospel, but our presence that you know us and we know you, that you see us as hardworking and doing so graciously in light of what you're struggling with and where you're wrestling, where your doubts are, and instructing and guiding you and encouraging you, and even at times, yes, imploring you. All to do what? The end of verse 12 is the mission of the model pastor. He says, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The mission of the model pastor is for each one of you to walk worthy of God, to walk in light of the calling that he has on your life, for you to become a, a grow. I love the language of walk because it's a progressive portrait rather than one that's just you're in. That you're walking in his kingdom, walking further into, into the glory that he's made you for, the image that you're being shaped into. So the mission of the model pastor is not even the church as an institution. Churches that are led simply for the sake of the church or churches that are planted simply for the sake of like, look at the cool name that we have on the website. Churches and leaders that, that minister for like the, the stage or for the platform or for whatever it may be are just so far gone. Churches that, that sing, think of their, the mission of their calling is, is to go back to what I was trying to say a moment ago was butts in seats, bucks in the banks, and buildings or whatever, you know? They're just they're so far gone from what a pastor is. What is a pastor about? You walking worthy of the calling of God on your life. You being shaped further and further into it. Notice that it's not even baptism. 
I love this because this is a correction to most of us think they're like, go into the world and, and we skip, make disciples and we're like, baptize them. And like, that's what it is. It's all about evangelism. Paul's whole focus here would be, yes, 100% people from outside of the faith coming to meet Jesus, but not for the sake for them to fill out a form and us for never to see them, us for, uh, and for us to never see them again. The calling of the pastor is for you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God in your life. As Paul says in Colossians 1, what is kind of my theme passage for my ministry, is his, what we toil and labored after was to present everyone mature in Christ, which he then calls Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's what pastors are after. That's what you look for. The pastor who's, again, imploring when need be, but comforting when need be, and encouraging when need be, you walking in a manner worthy of God. C.S. Lewis writes, it's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, education, building, missions, holding services, but in a way, things are much simpler than that. The church exists for nothing else but to draw people into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, the leaders, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. I love this. It is even doubtful, you know, whether the whole universe was created for any other purpose. What is he getting at in the creation story? He's getting at what is, what is the story of humanity all about? It's all about you being shaped into the image of Jesus. A transformation of your character. And so then if this is what we're after, then this makes sense why our methods are what they are. You see, if, if the mission was to build a church, like to have a cool building and, and lots of cool structures and systems, then a lot of the methods that Paul just listed wouldn't make sense. You want to build like a cool, big, sexy church? The last thing you should be is gentle. You want to build like a cool thing that's growing and big and you can put your name on it? Then what you need to do is really focus on content and even if that means sacrificing relationships with people. Don't be known that's messy. You gotta, you gotta keep up an image for people to think that you're some kind of Messiah figure to lead this community. So don't be known. And when you, whenever you instruct, find the instruction that people want most and lean into that. So if people are like sadomasochistic in the way that they want their church services to be, then implore the heck out of them. If, if you want people that they're all broken and, and, and in need of a lot of work, which we all are, but like that's the main focus of, then you just sit there and you comfort them every single day. Don't ever implore, you might, or just encourage, always be encouraging, be the hype guy. You see, the methods of the church only make, of pastors only make sense within the mission that we're called to. Because if it is the image of Jesus that we're trying to lead you into, then what it makes the most sense is the image of Jesus coming out of us. This is uh, David Hansen, I'll just, I'll just quote him. Uh, Isaac, you quoted him like two or three weeks ago. I almost got out of my chair. David Hansen in The Art of Pastoring says, people meet Jesus is a book written to pastors in our lives because when we follow Jesus ourselves, we become parables of Jesus Christ to the people that we meet. You remember Jesus went around and he's telling stories, parables. He goes, the kingdom of God is like this, you know, seed thrown out in the ground and some of it grow, right? The kingdom of God is, is like this. He tells a woman about finding a coin. What David Hansen is getting at is, is though when Jesus brings together his church, he gives pastors to the church in a way to go, the kingdom of God is like, and he lays the pastors before the church. 
in their self-giving love, in their gentleness, in their, right? You fill in all those methods that we went through. And the calling is then, and being a parable, is not to be a perfect representation, but like Paul says, hopefully a blameless one, faithful, above reproach. This is the calling of what a pastor is meant to be in the church, imaging and reflecting Jesus to the church as we all are all together moving towards imaging and reflecting Jesus in the world. And so, I mean, this is, this is it. When you just think through, this is where you really wanna get running. This is what's really fun. Is in First Thessalonians chapter one, you just remember. So if, church, if pa- the model pastor is simply just a parable for, an image of, an imperfect small little version of Jesus, then you go back through chapter two of First Thessalonians and you just begin to find what Paul has written as being true about Jesus. Jesus is the one who was approved and sent by God. Jesus is the one who wasn't just entrusted with the gospel, he was the gospel. The one so committed to doing what was most pleasing to God that it brought him to a cross. You just read through the gospels. Do you ever find Jesus using flattering language? Do you ever find Jesus with greedy intent in his heart? And although Jesus could have been a burden to people as not just an apostle, as the son of God, he was as gentle as a nursing mother. Jesus, who is so pleased to share with us not just a ticket to heaven when we die, but his very life, because we had become so dear to him. And you remember his gracious hard work, not in tent making so that he could set aside our doubts and our fears, but in going to the cross so he could set aside our sins. And Jesus, again, through the gift of his spirit, has now given us an active, ongoing knowledge and experience of him. And how Jesus, like his father, encourages, comforts, and implores us to walk after him. And so any calling of a pastor in whatever way and leadership they're meant to carry that out of, the less that it looks like Jesus, the less of a pastor they are. And so honestly, for some of you in here, there's, there's some of you that have, I'll just speak for myself. On the other side, of failed pastors, the great gift is that Jesus looks to me and says, um, you have no idea how much more heartbroken I am for their failure than even you are. Not only for their own sake and themselves, but because of the fact that they were meant to be a portrait for you of what I'm like and they failed. And the more time that I spend with Jesus, the more time that I find that he begins to heal my portrait of what a pastor is meant to be and, and to, it validates their failure. And yet at the same time, Jesus never just sits there and validates the failures of others. Jesus will always call me right back to the church as the place where healing happens. And, and that, that is in many ways why I'm not a TikTok deconstructor guy is because the healing that I found over more than 16 failed pastors, disqualified giant messes and churches falling apart, the, why am I still here committed to this thing is because I have found that the primary place that Jesus is at work with in the world is his church and the primary place that he does his healing for broken churches is through healthy ones. And so those may be few and far between. And this is why passages like this are so helpful in finding the kind of pastors worth following after and trusting. And and what's so encouraging about this is that in a context where you find faithful pastors, 
is the reality that you just, when you look at them is the whole idea is that my goal in my life, which I am, not doing blame, I am not doing perfectly, but my goal is to do blamelessly, which means owning up when I fail, that you are able to find this sort of character of Jesus beginning to emanate through. Again, not perfectly, but in those moments where I drop the ball, the pastor should be the first to repent and own that as the one that Jesus is doing so much work on examining his heart through. And so that would just be the encouragement today is, is reality that what faithful pastors are ultimately doing and, and rereading this passage again is that this isn't simply what pastors are meant to do. This, is, this isn't just simply what Jesus ultimately fulfills. As pastors, this is a passage that's meant to over time through you being around good pastors become true about you. That you walk in the approval of God, that you walk as one entrusted with the gospel, that you make the primary motive of your life in whatever form and vocation and work that is as pleasing God, that you conduct yourself with a similar gentleness, that you find the way that you move through the world, not just to others in the church, but outside of, of the church is just preaching the gospel and evangelizing, but the giving of your very self, that you would labor and, and enter into hard work for the sake of the kingdom with a deep graciousness, that you would be a witness, one conducting yourself devoutly, righteously, and blamelessly, and that you would enter into more participation of a community of encouraging, comforting, and imploring one another. This is, becomes as much about the community as it becomes, as it is about as its pastors. This is the sort of community that the church is looking for. And, and hear me, in a de-churching moment, this is the sort of community that's gonna be the, a, a kind of lighthouse where people who have walked, 10 million people who have walked out of churches as de-church casualties, if they were ever to walk into a church again and if collective should so be that kind of a community, that they would find a place of healing, a place where, there are parables of Jesus, not just in the leadership, but all around the community. And so as we close, three people that I've been thinking about and praying for this week. The first are for those of you who, um, maybe like, like me, you, you, this, this hits very, very close to home because you've experienced some kind of, of, of this. Sometimes it might just be church hurt, which can range everywhere from a pastor doing something that was genuinely not in line with scripture. And sometimes church hurt is just your preference. You didn't get what you wanted. But regardless, there's, there's, there's work that needs to be done with Jesus here. And so for some of you, the reality is you have experienced something that, that it just, you just now, you struggle to see Jesus rightly. You struggle to see the church well. And you definitely struggle to see leaders within the church well because of some kind of failure, disqualifying sin, or abuse that was leveled at you. And, and my prayer today would be that you would open yourself up to a healing work for Jesus to do that here in the, in the context of community. And I'll just tell you, the reality is you may enter into that through prayer in just a moment, but the way that Jesus is gonna do that is yes, through prayer and coming forward and responding, but it's gonna be in your relationship to community. It's gonna be in your relationship with pastors. For some of you today, Honestly, the, the, the skepticism, the cynicism, and all this kind of stuff directed at pastors and even maybe some of, of your own preferences and what you would want for the church and the fact that we aren't that. I, just honestly, today, and I, hear me, this is not foregoing of a conversation that maybe we need to have with one another. But, but maybe, honestly, the invitation today is for you just to pray with Jesus. God, help me to trust the pastors that you've given me. 
Help me, help me to, if I can acknowledge that their motives are in line with what, if pleasing you, if their methods are gentle guidance and their mission is me walking further into the image of Jesus, then God, help me trust them. It's, it's, it's one of the most heartbreaking things in ministry is trying to care for people who, who, who just can't seem to receive that care. And so for some of you, maybe today is just, God, help me to trust. And then finally, there are some of us here who we, the de-church casualties who have walked out of the church, those are, those are names and faces for us. Those aren't just like stats, but there's someone in your mind that you're thinking of that comes to mind. And maybe today, the invitation is not to healing, it's not to trusting, but maybe it's just to you interceding for them, carving out space in our gathering to praying for that brother, that sister, that friend, that coworker. Because Jesus is so committed to this. He's so committed to his church. And the invitation for us is to continually respond and say yes to Jesus. And so what, whatever form that takes as we move into a time of response, I just invite you to, to think through those three. Let's pray.